Hello, welcome to another episode of A Need to Read. Before we get into this, I just want to talk about the Patreon and then we'll run into what the episode is about and who it's with. Patreon is the way that you can support me as a creator. I put a lot of stuff out there for free, but if you want to get access to bonus episodes and the book club, most importantly, the book club, a way for you to keep yourself and me to keep you accountable for your reading because you're paying to be part of something. If that interests you, head to patreon.com forward slash need to read. If it doesn't interest you, that doesn't matter either. Just enjoy the episode because this episode is with Catherine Bonella and it's very, very good. She is a journalist. She is a best-selling author of a few books as well, one of which I picked up in the airport on the way home from Bali. So I read it on the plane. I had no idea who she was or that this book existed. I picked it up and a week later I'm chatting to her about it, which is amazing. So thank you so much um, for everyone that listens to the podcast, which makes stuff like that possible. But the conversation I had with Catherine discusses all of her books that she's written, how she got into writing books about drugs in Bali and all of the stuff in between. So I hope you enjoy the episode. See you at the end of it. We should go from now. Catherine Bonella, welcome to A Need to Read. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on. I, like I was saying, I just read your book, picked it up in Jakarta Airport. I was just struck by the title of Snowing in Bali because obviously I'd lived there for about three months and hadn't seen any snow at all or imagined that there would be any. And I just read it on the plane. It was amazing. I just want to firstly say, obviously, thank you for being such a good journalist and writing such a good book because it made my... 20 odd hour journey a lot a lot better right well thank you yeah um now i have to ask you the horrible question of introducing yourself and sort of to give a little bit of a layout a pathway of how you got into writing books about drugs in bali sure um i'm a journalist i studied journalism after school at university and um I, I worked in London for a few years, actually, freelancing. And then I worked for a TV show as a producer, 60 Minutes in Australia. And I went to Bali and covered a story about an Australian woman, Chappelle Corby, who was arrested with 4.2 kilos of marijuana in a bodyboard bag. And um, she was this 27-year-old beauty school student from Queensland, Australia. And um, it, it captured the nation's, Australia's um, attention. And she became a household name. She said she didn't do it. And I covered two stories for 60 minutes over there. And in, in the process, got to know her family. And Chappelle and her family asked me if I wanted to co-write with her, her autobiography. And it was any journalist's dream in Australia. It was one of the biggest stories um, in Australia. She's, you know, she's a household name, um, mm. just known as Chappelle. So I went, I moved to Bali. I quit 60 Minutes. I moved to Bali and I went in and out of Karabakan prison um, twice a day for months to sneak in a little recorder and we did interviews. And in the process of doing that, um, I met Brazilian drug dealers who were in the jail, particularly one who kept on coming and interrupting us. He he didn't know I was a journalist at that point, only Chappelle did, no one else in the jail did. And um, because the book was a, a big secret till it came out, went to number mm. one in Australia when it came out. That's in, yes. in the UK, that's called No More Tomorrows. And, um, and then the publisher in Australia, Pan McMillan said, okay, what? what next and that because i'd been speaking to the prisoners and had seen this bizarre jail karabakan mm -hmm. which i dubbed hotel k 
because in some ways it's like it looks like a cheap hotel and you can pay for upgrades and so on so that led me to Karabakan <laughs> and in the process of writing that I met other drug dealers and realized that there's all this stuff going on outside the walls of the jail interesting stuff with drug dealers and because I'd written those two books and especially Hotel K the drug dealers in Bali had passed it around and they really liked it and they knew that it was authentic and and true and so they agreed to speak to me and then one would pass me on to the next and then That's that amazing. led to my my next book so that was snowing in Bali and snowing in Bali led me to Brazil as well because cocaine obviously comes from South America um, and that led me to um, to Operation Playboy, which was the federal police operation um, to catch these playboys who were taking cocaine um, in surfboards and sports equipment from from Brazil to um, to Amsterdam and Europe and Bali and and through Bali to Australia. So yeah. uh, that that's how it came. It was basically it it was it started with one one book and each led to another as I got to know more people and, and the drug world trusted me more and knew I wasn't an undercover cop. That was a very yeah. important story. Yeah, that's amazing. Did you feel like going into the, the prison in Karabakan, were you, did you feel safe at all times getting there? It's quite different to, to 60 Minutes in Australia, I imagine, as, as your office. Well, so, well, I mean, 60 Minutes Australia, I, I went all over the world doing um, stories. So I went to places that, that weren't terribly salubrious or safe in, in the process of, you know, researching and, and um, producing stories. But Karabaka, Hotel K is a mad world. And, and you've been in Bali, you know, that um, there's a lot of corruption. You've got to be careful. There's danger lurking everywhere under that glossy package holiday um, you know, cocktail by the pool, yeah. you know, superficial um, exterior. There's a there's a dark world. And Hotel K, the first day I went in there, the first day I went there, it was a. I remember it was a Sunday, and there's this guy saying, "Oh, there's no visits on a Sunday, um, but I can go and see whether they'll give you special permission." And I was just going as a visitor at that point. Um, I, I wasn't. Um, you know, they didn't know I was going to write a book with Chappelle. And he yeah. came back, sorry, no, look, I'll walk you get a, to get a cab. So this guy's walking me out and I said, oh, you know, what, um, are you a guard? And he said, no, I'm a prisoner. And I got to know him quite well. And he used to help me when other journalists were outside and I didn't want to be seen. He'd, he'd say, oh, you know, after a visit, he'd, he'd basically go and check it out on his way to the gym up the road and um, or hail me a cab or, you know, tell me whether the journalists were still there. And he was in jail for murder. And wow. he, he had a free pass to come and go, which, um, but that, that was the first day. The second time I went there, which is um, right, going right inside, I remember I saw some prisoner running with a chair, screaming, chasing another prisoner. And it was quite in your face scary because, um, you know, it's, it's it, basically it's third world prison. And, um, and it, it was all at that point, um, this was the first time I went in there was back in 2005. And at that point, um, the visiting area was just one um, outdoor area where everybody was, you know, it was serial killers um, to someone who stole an apple. They, they were all in together, yeah. they're all in the together and they're all in the visiting area together. But it, was, it wasn't so much scary as disgusting. Like you, 
there was open sex in the visiting areas that we that you witness and um you know doing it right next to you and it, it, they have this yeah i mean chappelle who i did the first book with she said when she first got there she, her and her sister were like how could they be doing it and then she realized in the women's block there was a woman sewing trapdoors into the crotches of the women's jeans so they could just go <laughs> have sex so it, but it, it wasn't so scary it, it wasn't really scary no but um I mean, I've been to, to places now, you know, subsequent books like favelas in, in Brazil mm. and talking to drug dealers. So that's a little bit more dicey than a prison in jail in, in Bali. Yeah. You know, though the prison is Hotel K, we called it Hotel K because, or I call it Hotel K in Chappelle's book because um, she was describing it when she first got there after months in the police cells that she walked in, there's palm trees, there's... Uh, the garden's nicely groomed, there's tennis court, there's sports area. And she said it felt and like checking into a, a cheap Bali hotel. And then she goes behind the walls of the women's block and slammed into a cell with 15 other women with fluorescent lights on all night. And that's, you know, suddenly we realise, no, this is a hellhole jail. But yeah. initially when you go in there, it's it sort of has the feel of a cheap resort. Um, you know, some, one of those cheap hotels in Cuda or something, you know. Um, mm. So, and also you can buy sex, you could buy drugs, you could buy a room upgrade. Money in that jail allowed you to pretty much, you know, buy days out at the beach. Uh, no way. Yeah, Yuri, an Italian guy who was busted, a, a surfer guy who was busted with um, five kilos of cocaine in a um, surfboard bag. Um, he, he got initially a life sentence and um, he he was telling me how and he was telling me how his parents, who I met as well, they were flying over from Italy, devastated their only son. You know, they were middle class, upper, a middle class family, and um, their only son was facing life in this third world jail. And he fell in love with someone in Bali, and um, they brought over the had the silk suit made and the silk dress for his bride, and they actually had the wedding in jail. And um, oh. Yeah. So, and anyway, Yuri was telling me too, and his mum was saying that um, he paid for days out and they would go to the beach. His mum would bring board shorts for the guards to wear and she would carry a, a bag with the guns, the guards' guns inside onto the beach, like a beach, a beach bag. And, and then he, long as he was back and then you would basically, you would say, you get a note saying you're going to the dentist and they would mm. let you out and then you'd go wherever you wanted to go. Money really, really talks, doesn't it? In in Bali, it's so. You you know that, right? You spent three months there recently. You, yeah. I mean, you get you hear so many stories. The most common is someone pulled up on a bike, you know, a motorbike without a helmet, and the cops basically will take a fifty thousand rupee or five dollars Australian dollar um, yeah. to to wave it and say, "All right, on your way." It's crazy because I, I like I understand how how people get into these positions in terms of I'm not saying I ever felt like I was going to sell drugs, but you you feel somewhat invincible to a sense in Bali when when you have a certain amount of money because you know that a, a couple of hundred will pretty much get you off of of what whatever it is and um, it's mad like in in snowy in Bali you talk about people's sentences being reduced with with a with a like thirty forty thousand dollars but to the point where someone was, i think someone was serving about 13 years and then the lawyer was like how like how much do you want to serve 
And he said two years and he said, oh yeah, no, don't worry about it. And he regretted not just saying one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the price varies depending, they have to find a loophole, you know, and that's what I wrote about a lot in Hotel K because um, like a British guy, Steve, um, had was busted uh, picking up a package of ecstasy pills uh, at the post office that was sent from Europe. And, you know, because obviously there's a lot of people on holidays with deep pockets on their own holidays who want to go to parties and have an ecstasy pill. So there's a big market for drugs there. There's a lot of, yeah. a lot of cash swimming around. And um, so he, that's what he was doing. And he picked them up and he got busted because they'd, they'd randomly scanned that package and they'd seen the... And also, they were, I think those ones were in pot plants, so it looked a bit odd. And yeah. um, but what happened with him? He paid um, a lot of money, and they in court they they said a certain number of years. And then I think in court they said I have to look it up now. It was a while ago I wrote that, but in court it was several years, and he was upset because he'd paid for far less. And the, his lawyer said, "Don't worry, don't worry, we'll do it afterwards." So afterwards, when they put the, wrote the documents. It, it brought it down to, uh, I think it was a year and a half because the judge in court couldn't say um, a year and a half when people with just, you know, uh, a couple of ecstasy pills were getting six years where they couldn't pay. Mm -hmm. So it would highlight corruption. And there are there is a corruption watch that looks out for that sort of thing. So you have to, you, you can pay, you can pay, but there's plenty of cases where people have left it too late to pay and it's hit the media and it's just too big. And... Yeah. Um, there was two Brazilians I interviewed, um, one, uh, two Brazilians, um, both caught with cocaine um, at Jakarta Airport en route to Bali, and they were both executed in 2015. So you, you can't always get off. You know, they had, okay. and especially Marco, he was, um, he, fl he flew in with um, nearly 15 kilos in a hang glider frame and um, then he got to Jakarta Airport and he did a runner. He managed to do a runner when the yeah. customs people started tapping the frame and realised there was something in it. And um, so he embarrassed them. So there was no amount of money that was going to get him off because no. they don't like losing face. And that was an international story. And Rodrigo, um, you know, they caught him red-handed um, with surfboards that had um, two kilos of cocaine in each one. So, you know, you can't always get off. Uh, people who are caught with a joint or a small amount or, of drugs, they can pay their way out. But these big cases, especially now, since there's such a focus. Yeah. Because I think, I think maybe that's the... But the police must almost be, at times, like, thinking, right, when I catch someone with drugs, like, this is, this is payday. This isn't, like, bringing them to justice. It must actually be very difficult for them in that position of such low income to not try and exploit people. Oh, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. I think um, there's, you know, there's stories of people who, when they brought in a new law, um, I think it was a couple of years ago now, that if you had a positive drug test, you wouldn't get prison because you could say that you're an addict. You could get away with saying you're an addict. Um, so people started paying enormous amounts of money for a positive urine test. Ah. Uh... So, but there has That's to be kind of loophole. They can't just say, "All right, you're unless it's a small amount, you know, you know, only a couple of cops realize, you know, know." Once it starts going up, you know, and becoming bigger news, very hard, very hard these days to to pay. But it, of course, it still happens. And like you say, the police earn small amounts of money, and it's it's uh, you know for them to be corrupt is is pretty normal.
and most Balinese, as again, you know, you spent time there, most Balinese just sort of accept that's part of how the place works. You know, in in Hotel K itself, in the Karabakan jail itself, what I discovered when I interviewed some of the big drug dealers in there was that a lot of them had the the guards were on their payroll and so um, they would help them bring drugs in and out of the jail and uh, they basically um, were safer keeping the drugs in jail than outside because the police aren't allowed in the jail without a warrant. So if they applied for a warrant, the guards would get early notification of that and they'd quickly tell the drug dealers and they would they would hide the drugs in their you know underground <laughs> spots that is or, fascinating or yeah so a lot of them you know were saying it's actually safer to keep the drugs in jail than outside but obviously i mean a lot of them you know kept keep dealing from jail like that's that's pretty normal i guess in in most jails around the world you know the university yeah. and networks you know for, for crime but they would call their dealers in Brazil or Mexico or wherever, and then they would get drugs moved um, yeah. while they were in jail. I mean, in, in Hotel K, I wrote about it in the book too, that um, one of the terrorists, he actually, you know, that from the Bali bombing, bombing yes. he, he actually um, organised the second bombing from Karabakan prison because a guard slept in the computer, a guard who was sort of sympathetic to the terrorists and their ideals mm-hmm. uh, slipped in the computer and from that computer he was able to raise money and also orchestrate the second bombings which were in 2005 on the beach um you know the where the fish restaurants are um and you know in a restaurant where more people died that is a wild story that you like from from prison to be able to do that it's very clear to see sort of how your curiosity was like peaked and then that this is like the the career path you've chosen what what has been has there been like questionable moments where you have felt unsafe like you know you said you went to the flavellas i know we've spoken a bit about hotel k but what um was there ever a time we felt like i wish i'd stayed on tv um uh no no i i find this maybe i've got a a a chip missing because i don't (laughs) The more the more sort of um, deep I get into it, and the more sort of dangerous places I go, the more real it feels. Um, you know, to really to go up into a favela, or um, it's it feels real and helps me write the book because I get more of a sense of what it's like for these, like especially Operation Playboy and Snowing in Bali. You know, where these guys go to Brazil and they're talking to um, this, you know the surfers in Bali who decide to to go up the chain and, and become a boss and get their own cocaine, a, a middle class, they call them horses rather than mules. And they mm. um, they come from educated, mm. upper middle class Brazilian families. So for them to um, go and talk to some of the top drug dealers in South America to get a kilo or two or three or four or five of cocaine, it can be you know scary for them too. And so it's really interesting for me to um, sort of see that and feel that. So I can put that into the book because one of the things I really um, like when I read books is to feel like you're there, to to mm-hmm. feel to feel like um, you're almost watching a movie, um, and see it and feel it, and um, you can only do that if you really have all the a lot of the detail. And that's one thing that or when people message me and say, you know, I felt like I was watching a movie or you know, um, I could really see it. I really felt like I knew those characters. That's the biggest you know, compliment ever for me mm. because that's what I love in books. So um, 
for, for um, in terms of any danger I felt. But probably the, um, the, rather than danger, one time, the, probably the most emotional time was when I was writing Snowing in Bali, one of the guys, um, the guys talking to me obviously were doing it on the quiet because there's a lot of drug dealers in Bali um, and a lot of um, fugitives. There's a mm. whole underworld there. And so when I, and I was talking to a couple of the really top ones and when um, someone found out that one of them who was a fugitive was talking to me and he thought that I had said something and I, of course I didn't, I just keep storm, you know, absolutely. Yeah. And, um, and he got worried because if the other drug dealers dob him in, he was a fugitive, he had nowhere to run. And, mm. um, you know, he'd run away from Brazil. So that, that was probably the most, and he found out later who had actually um, spread, it was someone else I'd interviewed um, who'd, who'd mentioned it at a barbecue to someone and then spread like wildfire that he was talking to a journalist. So they all get worried, like, what's he saying? So yeah. that, that was probably the worst. But in terms of scared for my own life, not not really, not really. Well, that's that's a good thing then. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't want to set that. I think it is true what you said about then about like feeling like you're in a movie is when you write the words of, of the people that you spoke to in the books, you, you don't censor it by, by the sound. Like you, I, I read it in a Brazilian surfer's voice and it's and it's written as such it's not like you've doctored it to make them super well spoken or anything like that and that's that's what um i quite like they talk a lot about getting getting each other in shit and i suppose that's the the main thing you kind of want to avoid is getting yourself in shit and them getting each other in shit because that seems to be like the the main focus of what they'd say about each other was you got me in shit or they're going to get me in shit so i'm not sure what you mean um just in terms like what they would say um, is not, I'm just going to try and find it now. They don't obviously speak in a well-spoken English way. Oh, you were just you, ca you captured that. Yeah. Just sort of like paraphrasing what they said there. Yeah. And um, here we go. So all my friends start getting caught in Bali, in Brazil and Australia. And then I was shit, man. They're going to come to me. I have to be more careful. Like it's just, it's you very like, when you see the pictures of Raphael, like you kind of, uh, of, of like Marco in the book, like you are seeing it come from them as if, as if we're almost you sat chatting to them, um, which is amazing. And it's a testament to your writing. So that's, I just wanted to say fair play for that. Cause that's very good. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thanks. Th thanks. The, the, um, I mean the, the way, because I'm a journalist, the sticking to the, as the facts and is, is, is what is key for me and making it authentic and so obviously you can see that I use some direct quotes, but I tell the story, I tell the story, mm. and then I use their direct quotes. Mm. And, um, and I think that's important for, for the reason you just said, um, that it's their story. And especially when you're doing, when I'm you know, doing interviewing people who can potentially, some of them are still dealing drugs, some of them are out, some of them are dead, but um, they, they're taking a risk talking to me. And so I have to tell their story authentically. And I think that readers can tell when something's authentic and when it's not. And so for me, making it authentic and, and getting a story from one drug dealer and then backing it up wherever I could in um, researching media stories, plus cross-referencing it with other 
um, drug dealers saying, do you know this? And then you know, that, that was a big part of it was, and they take a, like Operation Playbook took five years of full on going to Brazil several times, go, you know, going to Bali, going to Europe and talking to a lot of people and, and talking um, many times about the same stories to different sources so that I could mm. get them as, as, as much detail and as much authenticity as, as possible because their stories are wild and um, you've got to, you, you know, but they, they're authentic. And I think like you just said, they kind of come across as authentic because they are. And um, so that's, that's a, as a journalist too, I always think that um, truth is more interesting than fiction. And mm. if they're so wild, these stories, these guys are living on the edge, you know, that in Operation Playboy and Snowing in Bali, doing these things for a life, of, to, to live a life of a surfer or to, you know, the freedom that they have just to jump on a plane and, you know, got the money just and the time, you know, no nine to five ball and chain, they just jump on a plane and can, you know, go skiing in Europe or, or to Bali surfing and stay for several months. I mean, that's, that's their initial motivation, but they're guys who love a rush. And so they will, you know, uh, like Raphael in Snowing in Bali, for quite a while while he was deep into the drug dealing, that was enough of a rush and so full on that he kind of got out of surfing, which was the whole point to doing drug yeah. dealing in the beginning, why he got into it. And someone like um, Andre, he always said to me, you know, oh, it's the freedom, it's the freedom. And that's the irony, because if you look at Marco or, you know, most of them end up getting busted if they don't get executed like Marco did by a 12 sniper mm. firing squad, um, they get stuck in a tiny little, Karabakan Hotel K cell, and there can be nothing less. They, they're so, that's freedom, you know, that is yeah. the opposite of freedom, you know. So um, it's kind of ironic that these guys are doing this for freedom, and they are, that's their, that's their motivation, freedom to do whatever they want, and they end up with less freedom than virtually anyone on the planet, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. I just want to, because um, obviously you like writing in this style do you like reading books similar to the ones that you've written have you got any like what, what's your favorite book for example i know you probably read loads and that's a horrible question because people ask yeah. me all the time but what, what yeah. would you say your top three books are oh um you did say you're going to ask me that and i um I, I do read all the time i love reading i love books like um biographies memoirs and true crime books uh but i also read plenty of fiction but i guess one of my top would be um killing pablo by mark bowden because he's a journo okay and i really enjoyed is that pablo that. escobar yeah yeah makes sense yeah, yeah. um it's, it's, it's funny I, i'm not surprised that that's the kind of line of the the drugs journalist book yeah well it's just it's just um a nice mix of um nar you know it's a narrative and um but it's based on it, it's factual it's factual but you know i don't enjoy reading factual books that are written like newspaper articles you know that just sort of lecturing you i want to get into the story i want them to be narrative non-fiction yeah. um so that's that's the one that springs to mind that's when people ask me what my favorite book is i usually say that one um innocent man by john grisham i quite liked uh, again, that that was based on, um, you know, that's not based on, it is a true story. And I think uh, th that is John Grisham's only um, 
uh, nonfiction book. Nonfiction, yeah. And he can write. He's written a lot of books, right? <laughs> yeah, all fiction based on you know his his knowledge of the law because obviously he was a lawyer before he started writing books. Um, yeah. So that's his only true crime book. And I read a story saying he's just not going to write another one. It's too much hard work to do true stories because he, that was about a guy who was wrongly um, wrong, a, a black guy who was wrongly incarcerated for a crime he didn't yeah. commit. Yeah. Um, so they might not too uncommon a, a theme at the moment. Yeah. And um, although he wrote that a long time ago. Um, and the basically uh, just I can't think now off the top of my head which biography, but I love biographies. I you know mm. if I'm interested in the person, I love I read their biography if it's done by a good you know journalist. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think there's something about biographies is, is that like you get to if it's someone that you admire, you get to then onboard that person as a mentor through reading about their life, or you just get to get all the gossip. About their life. Well, even, even if it's not someone that you admire, like, you know, um, even if it's someone, a lot of people don't like Donald Trump, for example, and, you know, his books, are so, the, all the, the biographies on him are, are fascinating to people, you know, have been bestsellers, mm. so many of them, they just, you know, as you know, they just kept coming out and coming out by different yeah. people, you know, so I, I just, but I just want to make, I just want to, um, you know, always check out who's written it and make sure that there's credibility there because I want to read something that, that does segue into quite a nice sort of closing point there. Out of your four books so far, or five, is it? Well, it's it's four, but no more tomorrows. We updated last year because Chappelle got home to Australia, so oh. we didn't update, which is yeah. Oh, he's ruined it for everyone now. Well, not really, because <laughs> um, well, not well. I'm, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> well, where where should people should people start with your books if they want to? understand a little bit more about what it's like to stay in a cheap hostel slash prison in Bali? Well, if they want to understand that, Hotel K or Hotel Karabakan, the British edition is called Hotel K because no one can pronounce Karabakan. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, but it, and snowing in Bali, which you started with, um, is, is also... Um, it gives a gives a real insight into the drugs outside the walls of the prison. Um, and is is a little bit more international and and, and glamorous lot tells more of the glamour lives that these guys are at, live, um, and then Operation Playboy is is um, more is geographically broader. It includes a lot more about how they started trafficking from South Florinopolis, a surfing island in South Brazil, to Amsterdam, to Bali. Um, so to answer your question, I think probably start off with snowing in Bali like you did. And then, and then you can go to Operation Playboy and then Hotel K, which is much more specifically about the jail and also the loopholes that you use for corruption um, mm. to slip out of, you know, a sentence um, or such a draconian sentence. Um, yeah. Yeah, probably that way. But... Um, it depends, I guess, on your interest as well. If Bali is firmly, you know, what your sights are set on, then snowing in Bali and Hotel Karabakan are much more centred on Bali. Operation yeah. Playboy is much broader. And then No More Tomorrows is specifically about an Australian girl, um, you know, busted for something she says she didn't do, which is 4.2 kilos of um, of marijuana in a bodyboard bag. Yeah, and, which and seems like an awful lot. It's an awful lot. It was a kilo-sized amount. It's a, it's it's more than you'd, uh, yeah. It's a lot. 
yeah oh amazing well thank you so much for coming on it's it's crazy and i'm very humbled the fact that i can read your book and then within a week be chatting to you about it so thank you so much for agreeing to come on um i won't That's ask true. you what's coming next because i know we've kind of spoken about that but um i'm excited for whatever does come next i know that you're putting in time into into new works so yeah thank you so much for coming on catherine oh my pleasure nice to talk to you Ed. Well, thank you so much for listening there. I had so much fun with that conversation. Like I say, it's pretty cool that I was just reading her book a couple of weeks ago, not knowing who she was, and then I get to speak to her, all because of the podcast, which I'm super, super grateful for. Now, look, podcast, I do it for free. Got to pay some bills. Got another ad for you. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. This is actually quite a good ad, though, because if you don't feel quite like yourself or if you're feeling a bit anxious, a bit depressed and you're thinking maybe therapy's going to write for you, then I've got a treat for you because you can have 10% off with betterhelp.com forward slash a need to read. So you get 10% off your first month. It's paid monthly, but it works out roughly about £40 per week for your first month. And then whatever you need to add on for 10% for the next month is what you'd be paying longer term. If you have eight weeks of therapy it'll probably change your life. Big statement, but um, I'm only speaking from experience and loads of other people's experience that I know. Nothing scientific behind it. But yeah, if the time is right for you, the time is right. The link is in the description of the episode. But that is it, really. If you want to do me a favor, just give it a review on Apple Podcasts, five stars, maybe say something nice. Who knows? But you're all legends. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for making it possible. This is my job. I love you. Goodbye.